Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. For our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your pronouns? Hi, my name is Maronke Harris, and my pronouns are she, her. Awesome. So, Maronke, what are you currently researching? So, currently, I'm a graduate student in the Juniper Lab here at the University of Victoria. And with my advisor, Dr. Kim Juniper, I focus on hydrothermal vent ecosystems, deep sea mining, and the biopharmaceutical potential of vent microbes. Just the potential of making pharmaceuticals from bacteria found at hydrothermal vents. Oh, that's pretty amazing. So this is like high, like priority stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. But there's more to that. So in general, I'm just all in on deep sea exploration and deep sea resources. And this deep sea floor off the west coast of British Columbia, where I mainly focus on, it has several major underwater geological features. And these include the Juan de Fuca and Explorer Ridges. And here, new ocean floors produced by volcanic activity and fracturing of the crust. So these mid-ocean ridges host hydrothermal vent fields, which is what I study. And those are essentially clusters of hot springs that emit very hot, mineral-rich fluids, and they host really unique ecosystems as well that, instead of sunlight, rely on chemicals in the fluid as a source of energy. So these vent fields are extremely geologically dynamic and ecologically diverse. Wow, that sounds really exciting. So how exactly do you study these? Do you go out to sea, or are you using information that's already been collected by other people? It's a mixture of both, um, because the first step of my thesis work was creating the seafloor maps that we will then overlay our microbial information on top of. So that seafloor mapping information came from NOAA, which is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, and also Ocean Networks Canada. And that's what I've been working on mainly. So just alone in a dark room, <laughs> putting together these seafloor maps and 3D models. And then in January, I actually get to go to sea with Schmidt Ocean Institute for a total of 40 days. So it's a big expedition. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's where <laughs> that's I'll collect. That's a long time. Yeah, it is a very long time. Yeah. And that's where I'll collect my um, hydrothermal microbe samples to be processed in lab afterwards. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you got to where you are today? What did you research in the past and what were the steps along the way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a pretty diverse oceanic research experience portfolio, if you want to call it that. Uh, this is in part because I refuse to say no to opportunities and also in part because the deep sea field is very niche. And due to expense and location, that contributes to how niche it is. So opportunities afforded for entry-level deep sea physicians are more scarce versus what you might find for surface water research. So I decided to break into deep sea by gaining any oceanic experience of interest that I could and then building on the, upon the connections I had made. 
So on my journey to the deep sea, I've worked with six organizations across five cities in three countries. I've, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've survived the Bermuda Triangle six times. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> How are you still here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've also made a ton of new friends that I've become really close to. Um, and specifically, my placements have taken me from using image analysis to quantified Canadian barnacle microtopography. So topography would just be like if you were looking at the surface of the earth, you would see that the topography of the earth changes depending on the altitude of the land. So there's high areas of height, obviously, where mountains are found, and then low areas where things like valleys or sea level places are found. So we were basically examining that same concept just in little quadrats in um intertidal intertidal quadrats so and then the second uh, placement I did was studying climate engineering tactics in the Bermudian Ocean so that was with the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences and what we were doing there was experience experimenting on whether deep water could be pumped up towards surface corals to slow the effects of bleaching caused by ocean warming so we used water from 50 and 100 meter depth and the issue there was Deep water is colder, but it's also more nutrient rich. So you don't want to overload the corals with nutrients, which will also cause them to die. So it was finding that balance between the temperature cooling and the nutrients. And 100 meters worked better if anybody's interested. Wow. Um, yeah. And then after that, I went to Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida. And I was facilitating large scale water quality monitoring, monitoring programs and examining the effects of clay technology on Florida red tide mitigation and the chemical and physical properties of seawater. And then there's one more <laughs> position that I did. I just keep it coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before grad school, there was one more. So. Most recently, I worked with the North Pacific Andronomous Fish Commission, and this is an intergovernmental organization that's collaboratively run by five member countries, so Canada, the United States, Japan, South Korea, and Russia. And with them, I worked on hydrochemical characterization of um, water samples from the single vessel 2019 International Gulf of Alaska expedition, that survey area. And also I helped them with planning and preparation for a big project that has since been completed. And it's a five vessel Pan Pacific high seas expedition that involved almost all the member countries and five ships just sampling across the swath of the, um, the Northern Pacific Ocean. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. It sounds like you've had a part in all like a ton of really big projects and it's been a great experience for you. Would you say that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I love new experiences and I love diversity. So I, I'm really happy that I've had the opportunity to experience all these different laboratories and organizations and projects. Yeah. So kind of an offshoot question. What would you say one thing you've learned from working with all of these really big organizations has been? Like, what's one thing you learned? What's one thing that you would share for with people who are thinking about working with governmental organizations, uh, coalitions, stuff like that? One thing that I've learned is how open people higher up in their career are to helping people lower, like just starting out. Um, I've never had somebody tell me that they couldn't help me or give me advice or look over an application if I asked them to. 
So those older and more experienced scientists are really, um, really good at promoting the younger generation for the most part. And the one thing I guess I've learned is to just ask for help when you need it and rely on your community and make sure that community is strong because science can be solitary, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, that's great advice. And for everyone out there who's thinking about getting into ocean science and marine science, it's really good and encouraging to know that there are people out there who are willing to help. Moving on a little bit, what's something or one thing, many things that motivates you to do research and take care of the ocean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, my main motivation is just my passion for the topic because of how truly insanely fascinating I find it. So the most fascinating part about my work specifically is that rarity, the uniqueness of location and the potential for discovery. Because we have like thousands of meters under the surface of the ocean there exists a world that thrives and survives, but also thrives in the absence of sunlight. So here scientists are working to explore areas of the earth that few have seen. And it really contributes to the discovery of our final frontier on this planet. It's akin to space exploration. It's just easier to get to. <laughs> um, and also, in addition to this, there's motivation found in the contacts that I've made and the professionals that I admire from afar. So there are just stellar human beings breaking the boundaries of innovation and championing their sectors. And community is a big motivator because it's kind of like, if they can do it, why can't I? Like somebody has to do it. So if they can chase their dreams, so can I. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just an exciting place to be because, as you said, there's so much to discover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's one exciting thing that you've found so far, like the most exciting thing that you found in your degree search and maybe just in general? Well, my degree is still pretty in the pretty early stages, so I haven't found anything that is groundbreaking or something nobody's ever discovered before, but I am doing a PhD. So <laughs> the whole point of that is to contribute an area to contribute something to your area of science that hasn't been done before. So by the end of this process, I should have that, but just not yet. Um, but I do have just a general fun fact about the deep sea and deep sea exploration outside of my research, uh, if you'd like to hear that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just this summer, just this past summer in July 2022, the first person of African descent dove to Challenger Point, which is the deepest known point of the seabed and the deepest part of the ocean. And her name is Dr. Dawn Wright. She's the chief scientist of ESRI, which is a mapping software company. And for those wondering, the Challenger Point is around 11,000 meters deep or 36,000 feet deep. So this is an incredible achievement. Um, yeah, and it's uh, the Challenger Deep is located in the Western Pacific Ocean. It's part of the Marianas Trench, but the southern edge of it. So Dr. Dawn Wright is just like knock it out of the park. Cool. I think she's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> if you couldn't tell. <laughs> she is. For those who don't know, Dr. Dawn Wright is uh, one of the foremost oceanographers in the field. And if you have the chance, please look her up because she is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so moving on a little bit. You said you're in the early stages of your degree, but mm -hmm. can you give me or our listeners an idea of what a normal day looks like for you? 
So all my general responsibilities currently result, revolve around my thesis, also the undergraduate labs that I instruct, and being currently elected graduate representative for the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at UVic. So what most people point to when they hear I'm in the field of deep sea exploration is 30% of the work, things like the flashy robotics, the lengthy adventures on research vessels, and the talks and conference presentations and community outreach. But the majority of this work is done alone <laughs> in a dark room on campus. So that's where I work, as I mentioned earlier, on creating the seafloor maps and 3D models of hydrothermal vents. And I can also be found in the Juniper Laboratory, where I'll be practice, practicing, um, well, I'm, I'm currently practicing processing bacterial samples in preparation for the cruise I have coming up in January, where I'll be getting bacterial samples of my own. So science and grad school in general can be very solitary, but to a degree, I do enjoy that. Um, in a normal day, I work on campus or at home. I have a to-do list set and ready to go from the night before, and I do my best to check everything off. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> as I'm sure you can understand, <laughs> and that's all in between teaching, meetings with my advisor or other contacts, and the Graduate Student Society. So I personally try to stick to the hours of 8 to 5 p.m. because burnout is a very real issue in graduate school, and it's not fun at all. Um, but I often go over, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's a sounds like you're super busy and a lot on your plate. So it's understandable not that not everything would be done within those normal normal business hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But we keep pushing. We <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm also wondering, like, what kind of obstacles did you face along your journey? into science, into grad school, and how did you overcome those? This actually has to do with the burnout topic. So dealing with stress and having to be very adaptable. So I like to consider myself a pretty adaptable person, but grad school will definitely put that to the test, especially when you start <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic in a new province and a new city altogether. So I would true? say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of students that came in in 2020 can um, relate with that. So adjusting to new places, new people, also entering a field that no one in my family is in and navigating that field successfully on my own. So things like learning how to apply to science graduate school. Um, both my parents have master's degrees, but they're in mineral processing engineering and international development, so they couldn't directly help me when it came to pursuing ocean science. Yeah, no, I totally relate to that. My mom is an English professor, so when I was like, I'm going to grad school for science, she was like, what, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll cheer you on from the sidelines for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's great to have support, but it's definitely been a bit of a journey. <laughs> so how do you kind of counteract like the burnout and the stress and also just not having a ton of people? I mean, you, you mentioned having a great community. So would you say that that's been helpful for you in overcoming a lot of the uh, difficulties associated with grad school? Definitely. I mean, asking for help when you need it is one of the most important things with dealing with uh, burnout and the hard work that's involved in graduate school. And that in part it comes down to having an understanding advisor, which I'm very grateful for. 
Um, but in general, overcoming my obstacles, as I mentioned earlier, it's just that somebody has to do it and I want to be the one to do it. So that means in addition to asking for help when I need it, I need to learn when I do need to push past difficulties, especially pushing past imposter syndrome and celebrating myself often being my own cheerleader. And what I find is interesting about imposter syndrome is it becomes more apparent the more that you know, because the more that you know, the more you realize you don't know, and the more knowledge is brought to your attention. So ignorance is bliss for a reason. I think when I first came into graduate school, I was like, oh, I know everything. I am going to rock this. And then the more I figure out about my field, the more I'm like, I know things. I know a lot of things, but there is a lot out there and you're never going to know everything. So with time comes the wisdom that you will never know everything. Life, especially life in science, is meant to be an endless pursuit of that knowledge and curiosity. Um, and then additionally, as a perfectionist, it's still a work in progress, finding that balance between work and rest, not overworking myself, knowing when something is done well, uh, and being as busy as I am now, I've learned to be more patient with myself, much more patient with myself. So not every email can be picked over for long periods of time until I feel it's a masterpiece. Just focusing on making sure that the really important things are done exceptionally well and everything else is just done well. Yeah. And sometimes good enough is all that you can do. That is like your best. And, you know, it's it's OK. It's something I've had to learn as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And we no longer have the time for making everything ex knock out of the park exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> and to talk a little bit more about the imposter syndrome, I have mentioned that imposter syndrome is really prevalent everywhere. So it's not it's not just you. It's not just me. I think all of us deal with it at some point in our, our graduate career. And it's really good that we're having conversations about it and talking about it and that we're addressing it and that it's not going unnoticed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a common thing we all share. And that's, that is part of relying on your community. Like, even if it's not someone you're speaking to directly, just people being more open and honest about their personal experiences within grad school with things concerning imposter syndrome, just so we all have that commonality. We're all experiencing it and we're not hiding it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about your outreach. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the outreach that you're currently doing or stuff that you've done in the past or maybe a special project close to your heart? So all of my outreach right now um, revolves around the brand that I've created, which is the Imaginative Scientist. Um, I'm a science communicator and an avid visual artist promoting the SNA in STEAM, so science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. Underneath that umbrella of my brand, the imaginative scientist. And what I do there is, in addition to my general science outreach work, which includes things like ship to shore interactions with Nautilus Live when I was on their ship last August. So we reached 25 classrooms across the United States. And I was just talking to the kids about what life is like as a deep sea scientist, what life on a ship is like, um, how I got where I am. Um, so webinars like that are my favorite currently because you can reach audiences that you never used to be able to easily before. So I'm really a big fan of how Zoom has opened the world up for us, really, for spreading our science. 
Um, but in addition to that general science outreach work, I aim to blend science and visual artistry to create impactful, engaging pieces that make science accessible for and fascinating to all. Because sometimes when we think about science, uh, we think about things like abstract notation or formulas that are hard to read or understand. And in comparison to art, it's often a topic that can seem unrelatable to those who aren't in it. But science can't exist without art because artful imagination is the very essence of those creative aspects that science relies on. And similarly, art can't exist in the absence of science. And scientists are much more than the stuffy personality adverse uh, characters that are portrayed in pop culture. We all have side interests. So I figured why not just combine those two interests through my general outreach and my visual art. Wow, that is amazing. And we definitely need more of science and art together because people have different learning styles. And it, as you said, does really make it much more accessible to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So can we circle back around to your time on the Nautilus? I was also on there last year, which is cool. Awesome. I did a little bit of like Instagram sleuthing and it looked like you were doing a ton of SciComm stuff on there. So for our listeners, tell us what is the Nautilus, what is Ocean Exploration Trust, and a little bit about your role while you were on the ship. Sure. So the Nautilus is the name of the ship. It's Exploration Vessel Nautilus. And the website is nautiluslive.org. And essentially the Nautilus is owned, the Nautilus and Nautilus Live are owned by Ocean Exploration Trust, which is a foundation that was founded by Dr. Robert Ballard. I think it was founded in 2008. And the goal of this organization is pure exploration of the deep sea. So they go out with multiple different scientists, American scientists, Canadian scientists, even European scientists from time to time, I think. And they basically just help people explore the deep sea and then also complete their science if they have any particular samples they want to pick up that's done using rov or remote operated vehicle hercules um and in terms of the work that i did with them on the ship i was on the ship last august so i was on there as both a guest scientist and an ocean science intern because I got the ocean science internship in 2020. And then we all know what happened to the world in 2020. <laughs> so it was um, so it was delayed. And it just so happened that I was gonna go on the ship anyway, as part of my graduate research. So to get videos of hydrothermal vents in the main endeavor vent field for my research. And they figured, okay, two birds, one stone, why don't you come on and you do that, but you also complete this postponed ocean science internship. So that's how I got to be involved in the ship to shore interactions with the classrooms across the United States. And I also did an Instagram takeover for them where I basically just spent a minute to a minute and a half, maybe even two minutes. It was actually quite long because <laughs> there was so much I was excited about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just um, spent that chunk of time showing viewers and people who follow Nautilus Live on Instagram what my experience as an ocean science intern was so behind the scenes work we did um, how the food was there was a lot of cake on that ship when I was on it so that was a highlight so for people who are curious out there about what it's like to be on a ship and everything definitely check out Nautilus Live online because it's a great resource and they also have opportunities for for people who are interested in joining them 
Yes, I did the ocean science internship, but there's also an ROV engineer internship and a seafloor mapping internship. There are multiple and a science communication fellowship. So there are multiple opportunities to get involved with Nautilus Live and applications are due December 31st of this year. <laughs> so jump on it. <laughs> For our listeners out there, Moronke has so much experience, so much knowledge. What's something that you wish you had known before going into research? So as graduate rep for the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences, one of my responsibilities is to act as a liaison between the department and the graduate students. And this means bringing student concerns to the department. So a large issue that's currently commonly discussed is student funding. I find many students enter academia without examining the details of things like where their pay is coming from, how that pay is allocated, will it be enough for them to complete a degree depending on factors like their support system, their own expenses, their emergency savings, and etc. So I was lucky to join a lab that provides what at this stage in my life, I believe to be ample funding for my current living situation, but it's also extremely important for students to ask questions about funding to ensure that they'll be able to progress and persist in the lab that they choose to join, uh, which is ultimately a combination of multiple factors like how the lab stacks funding. So is TA pay stacked on top of your minimum base pay? Is scholarship pay stacked on top of your minimum base pay or are those consolidated into the minimum base pay, also what funding the lab has available and how much the student themselves has saved up. So, and also living situations like dependents can really change that for a lot of people. Um, yeah, so all those factors need to be carefully evaluated by the student to ensure that they're entering a financial situation that will be manageable for them in the end. But ideally, of course, it's not only the student's responsibility. It would be great for all graduate students to be afforded more funds to begin with. And the plug that I'm going to put in here is that there's a student yeah, <laughs> There's a student in the School of Ocean, Ocean Sciences. His name is Patrick Duke, and he is very motivated with this topic, like extremely knock it out of the park. So he's currently working on this at a national level. And he and his team were on CBC Radio's Quirks and Quirks on October 8th discussing Support Our Science, which is a rally that happened on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. And it's a movement that pushes to boost funding for young scientists. Wow. Yeah, we definitely need more initiatives like this. And I'm sure, as you know, the housing prices in Victoria are just like skyrocketing. It's becoming harder and harder to find affordable living situations. So as you said, the funding for grad students needs to reflect the things that are happening in society. <laughs> and with inflation as well across, you know, the U.S. and Canada, it's been harder, a lot harder for a lot of grad students to make ends meet with the current funding that a lot of them have. It takes extremely driven people like Patrick and many others to band together to try to actually make a difference um, in this at a national level which is very impressive, I find. You can probably tell from the tone of my voice. <laughs> yeah, it's such a big topic to tackle, and there's so many different issues associated with it. I'm super impressed also. <laughs> yeah, um, so is there anything else that you wanted to share with us? Um, any parting words of wisdom that you would like to impart upon us? 
don't discount how important community is. That's a theme that I keep coming back to throughout this interview. Don't discount how much people can help you. And even if they're not at really high levels of um, development within their career, there are peers that have knowledge that you don't have. Um, so just don't discount how much knowledge and power somebody may hold. And don't be afraid to ask for help and rely on your resources and build those resources. That's the most important thing for me currently. Yeah, thank you. That's great advice. And I think that's all the time that we have for today. So thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing all of your experiences with us. And I wish you the best in your research and your career. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. Bye. Bye.